Welcome to Shi'ar Jeshub, featuring the teaching ministry of Pastor Greg Scalzo. Hi, I'm Patty Scalzo, and the Church of Shi'ar Jeshub Christian Tabernacle of Madison, Connecticut, would like to invite you to join us as we continue my husband's in-depth series on heavenly authority. In our last program, Pastor read from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 15 and 16 where we are told that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, going on a circuit from year to year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. Pastor Greg was discussing this circuit ministry when we left off last time, and the New Testament counterpart of the apostles going out on missionary journeys to spread the gospel. Now, let's rejoin the Sunday Sermon. You see here the tremendous burden upon Paul, the suffering in going out for the Lord to bring this message that we could have it today. As he went about that circuit, even as Samuel went about his small circuit, and there's a sacrifice that's obviously being made by these men. And we praise God for the victory, but a lot of times we don't appreciate how how struggling and how difficult they had it. Paul said uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the matter of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? He was confronting those who say there was no resurrection. We discussed that on resurrection morning. And Paul's saying how silly that is. This is being done for a reason because God does raise the dead. There is a hope. But he actually had a fight with animals. He was attacked by some type of beast in Ephesus. So they had difficult times, even though they had tremendous mighty victories by the Holy Spirit as they went from town to town, from city to city. And so Samuel is a type of these New Testament ministers who would go on circuit. And even in our own nation's history, there was an integral part of our nation's history in the first Great Awakening, in the second Great Awakening, but it's not spoken about in most public schools today, where you had these circuit riders who would go out on horseback and they would go from town to town preaching and teaching the people the Word of God. If you want to know a good history book, they have a series of them. This is one on the Second Great Awakening. It's called From Sea to Shining Sea by Peter Marshall and David Manuel. And in here, one of the things they speak about, as well as the rest of the history of the United States at that time, are these circuit riders. And I'll, I'm going to read just one section of it. It's history that you don't hear often about, but you can see that, that servant spirit to go out, to leave, to sacrifice in order to, to reinforce, to go town by town, Mizpah to Gilgal to Bethel. We'll take a moment and read it. On the stretch for God. A new breed of lightning rods emerged from the great revival in the West. Men who would spend much of their lives, quote, on the stretch for God, as George Whitfield, 
the original circuit rider had put it. The lightning had fallen suddenly and astoundingly on camp meetings throughout the frontier. And now these saddlebag evangelists had committed their lives to carrying the light of Christ to all who had been unable to attend the meetings. They would ride deep into uncharted territory. And later, on repeating circuits, they would water the wilderness seeds that they had planted. These were the black-cloaked Methodist missionaries assigned to a circuit of frontier settlements that would usually take them six to eight weeks to complete. They practically lived in the saddle, taking lodging wherever a family invited them into a house or barn, and taking every possible opportunity to pray with them and cheerfully share the good news that Jesus Christ came for all sinners, even one's host. As a result, much of the frontier was converted to Methodism. For even if these young preachers were not oratorically gifted, they more than made up in enthusiasm what they might have lacked in pulpit polish. What won their converse to Christ was not so much what they said as how they lived their faith. For the circuit riders were the only men on earth who drove themselves as hard or even harder than the American pioneers. And if there was one thing the frontiersmen respected, it was hard work. Consequently, if he were inside in a day so foul that not even a dog would venture out, and chance to look out the window and see a Methodist circuit rider passing, he would have to wonder at the commitment that impelled the preacher onward. Later, over a hot meal, to hear that preacher make light of the vicissitudes of his journey, well, it was enough to give a strong man cause to think. They would joke among themselves about the circuit riders, saying of a bitterly cold January day, there's nothing out there today but crows and Methodist preachers. They would chuckle, but they would also ponder. And when the preacher was in their own cabin and asking them if they wanted to accept Christ into their hearts, as often as not, they would agree. So bit by bit, at the beginning of the 19th century, a new light counterbalanced the new darkness. Earlier on, he spoke about the new darkness in America at that time what was going on in the, in the more civilized areas of the East, in the universities, and what was going on in the really rough sections of the frontier. A new light counterbalanced a new darkness. And men whose main recreation had been drinking and brawling now mended their ways. They might not go so far as to join the church choir, but they would begin to read aloud from the good book to their families and open their doors to itinerant preachers of any persuasion. School was usually opened with singing and scripture reading, and prayer was not uncommon. Sooner or later, in the course of making their appointed rounds, the circuit riders had to surmount practically every conceivable obstacle, even bears. You think of Paul fighting the beasts. Perhaps the best known of them all, Peter Cartwright, looking back years later, recalled, a Methodist preacher in those days, when he felt that God had called him to preach, instead of hunting up a college or biblical institute, hunted up a hardy pony or a horse and some traveling apparatus 
and with his library always at hand, namely Bible, hymn book, Methodist discipline, he started, and with a text that never wore out or grew stale, he cried, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. In this way he went through storms of wind, hail, snow, and rain, climbed hills and mountains, traversed valleys, plunged through swamps, swam swollen streams, lay out all night, wet, weary, and hungry. This was old-fashioned Methodist preacher fair and fortune. Under such circumstances, who among us would now say, Here I am, Lord, send me? But they did. Many of them did. And they made a change. So the writer of the book concludes here, this last paragraph I'll read. So they rode, moving like needles across the fabric of America, quilting regions together with the common thread of a shared faith. This sowing was needed not only to prepare the nation for the heart-rending civil war that would come in two generations, it was needed right now. For without the spiritual needlework of the evangelical ministers of all the major denominations, the fabric of the young republic would not have survived 10 years, let alone 60. Because there was such independence, almost like the time of the judges. You know, everyone was free to do what they wanted. It tied them together from the, you know, the highbrow universities of the East to the drinking frontiersmen in our West. All of a sudden, this revival, as these men went out, sold the country together under a common faith. And the sins were repented of, and there was a time of awakening. This is the, he's reading here the foundation for the second great awakening. The first great awakening actually formed the foundation for the revolution. The Second Great Awakening guaranteed we would survive as a nation because the rendering of the country that would follow 60 years later would never have been survived if there was not a common faith in this country. If the people did not speak the common language and both from the North and the South, the average person was a Christian. You, and you hear then the journals of the, the Civil War veterans from both the North and the South, and they would write, in the, and the people remarkably back in those days wrote much better than our high school and our college graduates do today, and they would write to their loved ones and mention their faith in Jesus Christ. It was a one unifying fabric. It was such an important part of this country that tied it together, and again by these men that went out on the circuit, that sacrificed their lives, that went from town to town. And when we see this country and we see it as one unified nation, we don't think of the role that these men played and bringing people together from all different backgrounds to make this a country, one nation under God. And they're not praised in the, the school system today for how important that circuit rider was, how important the circuit rider was back in the time of the New Testament apostles when they would get on ships and they would go to the nations, the Gentile nations, and preach the gospel. How important what Samuel is doing here. Year to year he goes out and he travels that small circuit there to bring the word of the Lord, to take this nation that has gone after so many different kinds of gods and forgotten their own God, to bring them back to repentance and bring judgment of the Lord to the people. Verse 17 of chapter 7, after speaking about the year-to-year -year circuit that Samuel went on, verse 17 says, but he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. 
There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And you think about how Hannah had to hand them over. Now, we don't know if Hannah is alive, Elkanah is alive, his father. They'd be elderly at this point. They probably are not. They could be. But how even while Samuel is given to Shiloh, now he comes back home. Shiloh has fallen, and he has a home base. He returned. He always returned. The, the scripture is clear to tell us he always returned after the circuit to Ramah, for his home was there. And we don't know, we said this early on, we, we studied 1 Samuel, we don't know the exact location of Ramah. We're told in 1 Samuel 1.1, it's in the Ephraim Mountains. There are actually six different Old Testament cities named Ramah at different locations in Israel. This is the one in Ephraim's Mountains, Ramathaim Zophim, remember that? You know in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, when it says, and they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their home in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her and she became pregnant with Samuel. So that's his home. And he goes back to his home, his birthplace, and now becomes a place he lives where he centers his seat of judgment. And we'll see later on that's where he's buried. And he makes an altar there. So he still ministers as a priest, and it's almost like a temporary replacement for fallen Shiloh as he builds the altar there by his home. This is a good point at which to leave the sermon. If you would like to write to us, you can reach us at Shear Jashub Christian Tabernacle, P.O. Box 518, Branford, Connecticut 06405. For Sunday service, we meet in Madison, Connecticut at the Memorial Hall on Meeting House Lane at 10 a.m. Please join us next time for Shear Jashub.